you know what folks there is just something about that base that gets us ready to talk sports and race thank you once again for tuning into award tour the podcast i am brian albin he is unqua sonye uncle how you doing this week <laughs> that's the best opening line of the series i need to that might need to be oh man that might need to be on a shirt we have to get our trademark lawyers, uh, uh, the corporate team on it, because, wow, that's hilarious. The, the that's hilarious. Of whom exactly? Hey, man, speak it into existence. Manifest, <laughs> so the children say. I'll take it as you're doing all right. Hang it in. It's, 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 it's that time of the week again, as usual and as always. So it's always good to be here. Well, it is always good to be here. And as always... We will be talking mostly about sports, a little bit about things going on in culture, and we're going to be taking it from a different lens than what you may be used to. As always, while you're listening to the show, make sure you find us, whether it's on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to us, just go ahead, click five stars, leave us a little review, and then you know just enjoy your hour's worth of content. Because on today's show, we're going to be talking about Pittsburgh Steelers lineman Alejandro Villanueva's decision to not go along with the rest of his team's social justice statement. We will be giving out our weekly awards, the namesake of the show. We will also be playing America's favorite new game, Tell Me Something I Don't Know. But before we get into any of that, Unqua, it's a Wednesday. That's normally when we tape. Yes, it is. And earlier this morning, We found out that after initially saying there would be no fall football season for the Big Ten Conference, the university presidents of the Big Ten Conference, after much controversy, much public pressure, have reversed course and have decided they will indeed have a fall season scheduled to start the weekend of October 24th. They are going to try to play a eight-week season in a span of nine weeks to make their conference eligible for the college football playoff. This conference seemed so steadfast, and they weren't going to be having a fall football season because they felt like there were too many health risks for the student-athletes to be having a season. How did we get here where we're having one now? Well, there are two angles to this. I would argue the first being that even the Big Ten's own players didn't even want to be involved in the safety ramifications. I mean, there were literally players from all over every team in every conference that said, we want to play and we don't care about the risks. I find that to be, while heartening for the competitor in me, uh, the other half of me, what you can call the, you can call it, you know, more contemplative or what have you. I'm sitting there like, really? Guys, this is this is not exactly forget ideal conditions. This just doesn't feel wise. But if you want to talk about listening to the players and empowering them, cool, whatever. I get that. What I don't understand is why the White House account is literally tweeting that Big Ten football is back. I mean, I get why. 
But that's what makes this so weird because we spoke, I believe it was actually a week ago, if not two, that President Trump called the Big Ten headquarters trying to figure out what the season was about. And we came to the conclusion that it was really politically based because of the fact that the Midwest has a few swing states that might recognize the fact that, hey, the president got me to watch Ohio State football again. I think he's worth voting for again. With all that being said, it's very surreal to me how involved the White House is. We all know why. We all know the ramifications of what he's doing. But that doesn't make it any less weird or wrong. So the funny thing about that point is actually that the uh, Dan Wolken of Yahoo spoke to a Big Ten source who said the only involvement of President Trump was that one phone call with Kevin Warren. That it's not like he has been super active beyond Twitter talking about the need for a Big Ten season. I do, I do wonder on your point about the players wanting to play, what the actual numbers were. Like how many players were really adamant about having a season? How many were comfortable with the original? And I assume we might find out some of that once we find out who's opting out uh, over the next couple of weeks. But here's the thing that's crazy to me about this. If the Big Ten made the conscious decision they weren't going to be having a season because they were concerned about the health risks involved for their student athletes. What actually has changed to make them now feel less concerned about those? And there is an ESPN article that was written uh, that discusses one of the primary factors why some of the Big Ten presidents were willing to come around is that there is now the availability for rapid daily testing, similar to what like the NBA has been doing in the Orlando bubble. In which case, if there is a player who tests positive, by having rapid daily testing, it'll give these schools the ability to contact Trace in a way that they weren't able to when they were having summer camps. And it was making it nearly impossible to figure out where who had contact with whom and how to stop it from becoming an outbreak, which it did at some of these universities in their athletic facilities. But the other thing that most, I think, concerned the Big Ten was heart conditions. And the Northwestern lead team physician said that in addition to the rapid testing, the Big Ten now will have the ability to access MRI screening, a cardiac MRI screening for players who test positive. And that way they'll be able to be more involved with players who test positive to make sure there is no heart conditions immediately before sending them out onto the field. And I guess that then becomes my question is, how is that all it takes? (laughs) Because we still don't know what might happen to somebody two years after they have this, three years after they have this, four years after they have this. It feels like everybody who is in support of football keeps clinging to the idea that the death rate among young people is super low, like infinitesimally low. That that's all that should matter, as if there is a zero-sum game of life or death, and that there's not a whole spectrum of issues 
that somebody could later face in life that we don't know about yet. Which then begs the question, I don't think these university presidents are so naive to that, that they don't really have any of that information yet. So is this purely about, well, the SEC's playing and the ACC's playing, so now we have to play? Is this purely about the money? Because it's hard to feel like it's about anything but the money. You hit the nail on the head. And there are two angles to this. The first is that football at its core is purely American. It shows that you can be tough. It shows that you grind it out. All of those things where they call players heroes, equated to war, all that sort of stuff. Now that that's restored, okay, I guess. But the second part of this, which I think will even have bigger ramifications down the line, is what exactly this will do for the rights of student-athletes down the line. Because let's make one thing totally clear. We've heard it said by Barry Alvarez from the University of Wisconsin, and we've heard little bits of it peppered all around the country in different conferences, in different situations. COVID is taking a huge financial toll on every FBS football program right now. Even the FCS programs aren't doing as well. And what makes it even worse is that now these players are volunteering to play in a pandemic. How else are they supposed to even bring together anything down the line? Because as we've seen, these institutions don't operate in good faith. These institutions don't see these players as anything more than mean, a means to an end. There was a quote about the LSU football program that says that the program generates $400 million in revenue. A program which in which its head coach and assistant coaches are paid upper six figures into the seven figures. But the program as a whole is worth $400 million. And yet the players are paid nothing. And so these universities are calling upon their already unpaid student athletes to bail them out in a pandemic that was caused by the very same entity that caused this pandemic to go from manageable to country stopping. It makes no sense at all. And what stinks is that now as the conversation goes down and down the line, I hope on everything, I hope and pray on everything that there is no hint of health issues linked to being active and playing in this pandemic for anybody, but especially these collegiate student athletes. With that being said, now there is no more negotiating power. If you're willing to come back in at a time like this, They've got you. That's one thing the NBA did, right? It showed the power of the collective. But unfortunately, like the big brothers in the NFL, college football has decided they're going to take one for the overall team, and they're going to get screwed down the line. So we talked about that a few weeks ago on the show. I, I brought up the point that Northwestern tried to unionize as a football team a few years back. Uh, yeah, a few years back. They were rejected by the National Labor Relations Board. 
considering everything we're seeing around this pandemic right now, if college football players tried to form a union, which I think they need to do right now, um, I don't know how the National Labor Relations Board could deem these players to be anything but employees of the school, considering what they are being asked and in some cases kind of told to do Mm -hmm. on behalf of the university. Here's what's enraging about everything we're getting right now. For one, you brought up LSU. Ed Orgeron saying earlier in the week something along the lines of, we pretty much already believe our whole team has had it or most of our team has had it. So we are uh, hopeful that they just can't get it again. So essentially Ed Orgeron is saying, we decided to take the herd immunity approach with our football team. So we should be ready to play a football season. We don't really know what the long-term concerns are. I hope LSU has some real good liability lawyers because if any of these players 15 years down the road have heart conditions or any sort of medical condition, they're coming for that ass. Immediately. They will be suing you. Immediately. Um, secondly, and here is why I think I have mentally committed to boycotting college football this year. And I love college football. So this is going to be hard for me. It is utterly absurd to me to think that rapid daily testing and the availability to do it for the football team is what drove the Big Ten back into having a football season. No such announcement was made if rapid daily testing is going to be extended to non-revenue sports Mm -hmm. in the fall to make sure that they come back and have their seasons. Nothing was said about this same rapid daily testing being extended to the general student bodies at large who are on campus right now into in the case of university of michigan you have graduate uh, student teachers who are on strike right now because uh, of some of the quarantine measures being put in place for students who get the disease like the idea that we are going to be having rapid daily testing prioritized for football and football only on nonprofit educational public universities while the student body is still a freaking animal house of coronavirus all over the place. America, we have lost our way. We have lost our ability to have any sort of priorities when we're doing everything it takes to make college football happen. And we don't actually do what it takes to make sure that academic institutions can provide safe academic environments to students. I have no choice but to boycott. And mind you, these are the same institutions that are begging for fundraising dollars. These are the same institutions that want to make it seem like it's all for one and one for all. When they have proven that they are loyal to one thing and one thing only. It is the bag. All right, folks, welcome back to the program. Welcome back to all of this. 
And if you thought that was thought-provoking, let's bring you to America's favorite segment, Tell Me Something I Don't Know. As always, we love it when listeners interact. We love when they send in questions. We've already had one listener submitted award. But instead of telling you something that we're trying to communicate about our lives to each other, which is what this segment usually is, you're now going to get our cold and unrehearsed takes about the statement. Now, if you were with us last week, we talked about the hiring of Steve Nash as the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. We talked about the nuance. We talked about the privilege that is interlaced within the hiring. And I had somebody send a question, and it goes like this. The listener is asking our thoughts or perspective If black and indigenous people of color have been suppressed for so long that they too are fed and subconsciously have believed the lines of white superiority slash supremacy and particularly black and indigenous people of color who have achieved power, money and fame. If that's too wordy for you, let me sum it up. How often do black and brown people and and other non-white people, how often do they sort of contribute to white supremacy it's a very long-ranging question very interesting question at one point or another we're going to get somebody smarter than us to break it down but from two laymen brian what's your take on that so yeah i did i did find myself when i was reading the question um the big question that i had was like are we asking in the case of Kevin Durant and Kyrie is who we're sort of using is the examples in this. Like, are they buying in by looking at Steve Nash as a coach figure? Are they buying into uh, like white privilege tropes? Was that sort of what we're trying to answer? Are we trying to answer like Arcady and Kyrie afforded white privilege because they are, or like contributing to white privilege through their own celebrity privilege status? That's a good question. I would, I would, I would think that it's more on the former question on the former. Yes. So that one's interesting. And that one, I, I tried to do some digging, but I just was, you know, in like an hour long Google search, just didn't find anything scholarly that was really answering uh, what I was trying to find in terms of trying to address that question. I don't necessarily believe in this instance that like Kyrie and Kevin Durant are buying into ideologies that help create white supremacy and white privilege. I don't think that they are looking at Steve Nash is a good option to be the head coach because it is like ingrained into our brains that white is the intelligent race and therefore white is meant for that position. I don't think that that really has bearings in this situation. I feel like the privilege that we talked about in this instance was more of just like all-star privilege right? Like stars see stars and stars respect stars as such. 
So I think a Kyrie and a Kevin Durant who are at the peak of their profession are more likely to have respect for somebody who did what they did and was capable of doing what they can do in terms of rise to the height of that profession. Like Steve Nash, two-time MVP, I imagine carries more clout to them than Jacques Vaughn, journeyman NBA point guard who's served several years in the coaching ranks, or Kenny Atkinson, dude who never played at the NBA level, but has coached all over. Like, I feel like it had more to do with star privilege in this specific instance. But do I think it is possible that black people can be like mentally victimized by the ideologies of white privilege and white supremacy and that it's possible to sometimes be fed it so much that you end up making the mistake of believing it too. I I assume that's possible, but I'm not really qualified to comment on that. You know, (laughs) that's fair. Um, I think my first answer to the question would be yes particularly because depending on whom you talk to, they may not see it as white privilege per se. They may see it, like you said, Brian, just a privilege attached to whatever else that uh, the person in question had been doing in their natural born life. I'm somebody who has, I'd say, seen a lot, if not enough, of the way that people view black candidates versus white candidates really in anything. And when you look at how American society in particular operates, they do operate with that default feeling that white is normal. White is acceptable in leadership positions that everybody else would just be happy to be there. With that being said in basketball, I do find it's, it's a little bit, ingrained that way as well you think look at the way that we talk about white players in general the white player is always crafty always heady always seen as somebody who's not supposed to be there the reason why somebody like Luka Doncic is blowing everyone away because if you looked at him he's a six seven not so muscular looking white guy that is a top three player in the NBA like to many people, that's not supposed to happen. LeBron James is supposed to happen because he's a six, seven, six, eight black freak of nature. So when you boil that down into GM decisions, coaching decisions, it would make sense that it's ingrained so much in that culture that you know what? The white guy is the heady guy. He's probably smart enough to run a team versus the black guy who quote unquote only got by on his talents. I do think that it's a tough conversation to have. Even hiring Steve Nash in itself, although it was not done in the most equitable way, it's a tough call. I'm glad that we're having this conversation. And I don't think that it was fully a white privilege hiring, but it definitely played a role and it continues to. And sometimes I feel like within the league, it does beg to ask these questions. Why are we seeing this, overseeing that? Why is it just accepted that way? 
And gratefully, it seems like the league is in a place where they're continuing to have these conversations. They're continuing to figure these things out. And this is also a league where they do look at the merit of the overall package. And Steve Nash as a player, the overall package, it it, it begs no question whatsoever. But I think it remains to be seen whether or not it can actually turn into something positive. So I definitely think that your point about coded language using to, uh, being used to describe athletes, it, it's definitely a thing. At the same time, though, I don't think it's something that we necessarily apply universally. Maybe that's not the right way of saying it, but like you bring up LeBron James is, you know, the counter to the white guy gets labeled high IQ player, essentially, whereas LeBron James gets praised for his physical gifts. But like anybody who legit talks basketball will also point out that LeBron James is probably the highest IQ player in the league. Like, of course. So, but that's not the first thing that they think about. Well, so in some cases, in some cases, the stereotype can legitimately apply, if that makes sense. Like, you got to unpack that one. Well, so if, if we're talking about certain players who get to the league, there are certain white dudes in the league who need to re- like rely on something outside of athleticism to get to where they get. There are certain white dudes who don't have the athleticism is some of their counterparts. At the same time, there are some dudes who are super athletic who have low IQ who are white. There are also dudes who are super athletic who are black who have high IQs. Like the stereotype can apply to some extent, but not be the whole story, I guess is what I'm saying with that. That's fair. And like I if also... you're talking Steve Nash, it's super fair to call him a high IQ player because like he was the general of the seven seconds or less offense essentially with D'Antoni and Phoenix, which hadn't been done yet. And like, I'm not sure every player, every point guard in the league could have made that work. Like, I think there's something about Steve Nash specific to him that helped make that work at the same time. Could LeBron James have made that work? If LeBron James was running the show in Phoenix, absolutely. LeBron James is of that caliber mindset. Um, Is it unfair to praise LeBron James for his freakish athleticism? No, like he's literally the most athletic NBA player I've ever seen. It's unbelievable. So like coded language definitely exists. And I would never deny that. Like it's definitely used and it's used too widely, but at the same time, Sometimes it does apply. Yeah, sometimes um, it applies. On the case-by-case case basis. And, like, I don't think I don't think everyone just gets pigeonholed into the coded language, I guess is what I'm saying. I feel like most people who are basketball people are smart enough to see where it applies and see where it doesn't. You would be so amazed to watch a bunch of white high school coaches just talk about some of the players that they see. And they use those that same sort of language. So while while I get why you would while I get why you would say, you know, especially in the case of LeBron James, of course, athleticism is not the only thing you think of. It is indeed still a problem. It is indeed still something that people deal with all the time. And when we look at the broader 
conversation of who we qualify as basketball people, a lot of them are having that conversation. While I agree case-by-case basis is everything, if not the only thing, I'm somebody who has seen it being used against all sorts of basketball players across every single level. And I think that we have to address it at the root. And I don't think that it would be appropriate just to say that that would be totally a one-off since it doesn't apply to LeBron. It doesn't apply to everybody else. And I do think that sometimes, especially if you as a player have only had white coaches, it seems fair to think that, hmm, you know what? Maybe, maybe this is the way that it's supposed to be in order to answer the original question presented. Well, I guess just just to make the counter argument on that, though, like when we talk about other extremely high IQ players, here's one, Kyle Lowry, right? Like Kyle Lowry is another instance of a dude who does not have supreme NBA athleticism. True story. Therefore, he must rely on his IQ to be at the level that he is at. And flopping. And And flopping. I was also, (laughs) while you're bringing up flopping, the next person I was going to go to was Marcus Smart. Like, once again, Marcus Smart, a very good athlete, not the most athletic player in the NBA, but so much of what makes Marcus Smart who he is, is relying on an incredibly high basketball IQ. So, like, I guess my whole thing is I feel like basketball people, and no offense to you, I know you're a high school coach, but I'm going to go ahead and say, like, 95% of high school coaches in America, I'm not willing to call basketball people. Okay. Like, they're people who work on a teaching staff and who like basketball and the principal gives them the job. Aha. Right? Okay. No, no, I'm glad that that's actually very, that's a very good differentiator. So I'm not point. really willing to put them into the basketball people discussion, what I'm talking about, but like okay. we're talking pro we're taught like we're the specific example we've been talking about is what's happening in the NBA. And like, if you're in the NBA, you're basketball people. It is literally your profession. And so that's why for me, it's hard for me to label the Steve Nash incident into that just because like, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, I have a hard time believing. They see Steve Nash and they see uh, Jacques Vaughn Tyloo, just a couple of the examples of like guys who could have potentially been up for that job maybe, who were journeyman NBA point guards. To me, I don't think they're choosing Steve Nash if that was the choice. Again, we're working in some hypotheticals what we think may have happened Mm -hmm. here. But if that was the choice... To me, the choice was not a matter of like, oh, Steve Nash is white. He must have the higher IQ, uh, you know, because white dudes, they're not as athletic as us. They they just but they have the brains like to me. That's not would have been would have been the deciding factor for those guys to say, oh, give me Steve Nash instead of Ty Lu and Jacques Vaughn. To me, it would have more to do with Steve Nash is a two-time MVP. He's on our level as ball players. Therefore, he's who we think should coach us. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I'm sort of getting at is I see as the actual privilege that was more likely reflected if they had a say in the decision. Plus, KD and Nash had a personal relationship in like that part might be the most white privilege of it. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> like the idea that personal relationships end up dictating so many of hiring decisions um 
but I don't think race necessarily played into it in a way where we can use white privilege all that accurately in the way that we use it in so many aspects of society correctly, I guess is the overall feeling I had on this matter. But the question we were asked was extremely interesting and thought provoking and I enjoyed it. I'm very glad that you did. And I'm glad we got a chance to answer it. If you do have your questions, feel free to tweet and tag. We do have the social media accounts. We always say them at the end of the show, but feel free award tour pod on Instagram and late Twitter. We love to talk as you can already tell. I always love me a good old game of tell me something I don't know. And one one day we'll have to follow up, actually get some sort of psychology, sociology professor, fill in some of the gaps that we were unable to, because that question has many, many layers that I think We'll need to get to in time, and I would be interested in hearing from somebody more professional and more well-versed on the topic than us. But it's time to move on to our next topic here, because in case you didn't notice, the NFL made its triumphant return to our television screens over this past weekend with many messages of social justice and plenty of performance art, including using Colin Kaepernick in a promotional video of a union <laughs> statement. Wait, 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 wait. He still hasn't. Are you kidding me? I, I didn't oh, did watch any of the games. That? Are you, I didn't watch any games. Are you serious? The beginning of the games, like the teams would be lined up and they would have a video come on in the stadium that like gave credit to Colin for what he started. Oh, get up out of here. Oh, uh, you know, get I mean, out of here. We're going to get off topic. Oh my goodness. Oh hole. yeah. No, nah, no. Nah, I, ooh, we, I, I think I got to change my words around. Oh my God. My <laughs> anyway, God. Before we go down that rabbit hole, I just wanted to use that as the example to uh, laugh at some of the performance the NFL put on in terms of their uh, social justice initiatives. But one of the things that the league did allow teams to do and players to do is on the back of their helmets where there is a name decal, they could use that space to put a name back there or like a justice statement similar to what the NBA did on the back of their jerseys to raise attention to issues of police injustice. Um, And so the Pittsburgh Steelers had a team vote in which they decided as a team they were going to have the name Antoine Rose Jr., on the backs of their helmets uh, for the entire season to honor victims of systemic racism. And Rose in 2018 was shot and killed by East Pittsburgh police in the back. He at the time was uh, running from a vehicle that had been apprehended in connection to, I believe it was a drive by shooting. He was shot three times. He was unarmed. He was killed. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, considering the connection to Pittsburgh, they had a team vote and chose to wear his name to honor him on the back of their helmets. Now, normally a team vote means that the whole team is going to do that. Well, that didn't end up happening on Monday Night Football when the Steelers took on the New York Giants because offensive lineman Alejandro Villanueva 
who served in the U.S. Army, also uh, attended West Point, and who you'll remember stood for the national anthem alone back in 2017 when the Steelers decided to stay in the tunnel for the national anthem. Well, he stood alone again on Monday night as he covered up Rose's name with tape and wrote Alwyn Cash over it. Now, Alwyn Cash was a black U.S. Army sergeant who served in Iraq in the mid-2000s, and he sustained uh, burns while rescuing uh, fellow soldiers from a burning vehicle that had been hit by an IED. And three weeks later, he died from those burns. He has been honored, but he has not yet been awarded, I believe it is the Medal of Freedom, which many people have been campaigning for him to get. It would be an upgrade of a posthumous medal. It's the highest medal possibly awarded. And so Alejandro Villanueva decided to write his name uh, to, I guess, bring attention to that push. Uh, But at the same time, it was noticed by just about everybody that on a week when the NFL was trying to speak on racial injustice, uh, as well as the issue of policing injustice in this country, he chose not to go along with what was a team vote and do something on his own. What are your thoughts on this incident? It is just another symptom of what we now know is wholly American. Cognitive dissonance. It's so high and it's bewildering, baffling, and infuriating. Because we started off this segment talking about Colin Kaepernick slightly. Let's go back there just one more time that the very act of kneeling during the National Anthem was suggested, by the way, by a former Green Beret, and it was said explicitly that any protesting during the National Anthem, while it makes most of white America uncomfortable, has nothing to do with the military or disrespecting them. Every time we see the military used, we see it as a as a distraction point from the actual conversation being had. And while I want to commend you for bringing up the issue of police injustice, let's call a spade a spade. It is called, it is police brutality. That is exactly what it is. And somehow when it comes to Alejandro Villanueva, every time that there is an issue where racism is a problem, He always uses the military to say, well, you know, that doesn't matter. Like, dude, first of all, it was a team vote. That's not something I can really equivocate more on because that should speak for itself. And secondly, the fact that it's a black soldier does not equate to the whole point that your team was trying to make. The entire point was to bring more attention in case Twitter hasn't done it enough to what it means to be black and have an interaction with the police in this country. And instead, you chose to make it about something completely different and act like that's okay. I I hope his teammates checked him for that. I hope someone had the courage to. Because that's not okay. That's not okay at all. And it's not as if he had both names on his helmet. Both. I could have actually gotten with that. 
but it's a deliberate attempt to erase and avoid the conversation. And that's so garbage to me. So the biggest thing that stood out about it to me was obviously if your team voted that this was something you were going to do, even if you disagreed with the outcome of that vote, what makes you think that you of all people get to stand alone in putting on the name of someone else who you think whether it be more deserving, whatever his reason was for being on the helmet. Like what makes you think you're bigger than your team? That, that part alone is just baffling. The second angle to this that I'm extremely disappointed in thus far, if you're going to do that, you need to back it up with a statement. And he has provided zero context to explain why he made the decision he made. When Myers Leonard of the Miami Heat stood alone during the national anthem while the rest of his teammates knelt uh, throughout this whole NBA bubble experience, he at least had the courtesy to explain why he was standing and why he was separate from his team or looked separate from his team. Like when you do something in sports, we consider teams to be brotherhoods. When you do something that that makes you stand out from the brotherhood, you need to explain it. And the fact that his teammates all said they were surprised and didn't know it was coming that the only person in the organization who apparently knew it was going to happen was Mike Tomlin. The fact that he didn't even feel he owed it to his brothers to tell them he was going to diverge from a team vote. Again, it just makes you say, what makes you think you're better than everybody around you, right? Like that's what you're, you're deciding that what you care about stands above the team. And the part that's crazy about this to me is just that, like, you could have worn the damn decal and then used your post-media availability to say, hey, I also really want to raise awareness to something else that is near and dear to my heart. And it just makes me wonder, is there something between military and police in the sense that like both military and police enlist to protect and serve. Is there something about that that is making it where Villanueva is unwilling to do something that seems as not backing the protectors and servers since he was one of them? I mean, that's the thing. It's super hard to knock somebody who served in the military. It really is. It's hard to knock somebody who served in the military. Yet at the same time, presumably he served in the military to protect the rights and values of people of all colors and creeds who live in that country. So why I I just, 
I don't want to peg this man as a racist. I don't want to peg this man as somebody who doesn't believe in black lives matter. But when he doesn't even step forward to explain himself, it makes it really hard to give him any sort of benefit of the doubt right now. And the irony of the choice that he made, and I do consider it ironic, is the fact that using a black military figure almost totally knocks his point totally on its face. Because you think that just because it's a black soldier, because we haven't heard a statement from him yet, so this is me using the tiny bit of logic that God gave me, that you think that using a black soldier either adds to the message or makes the message matter less or what have you. And all I can think is, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. The sheer fact of the matter is that you had an opportunity. You had the opportunity to make clear that you stood with your teammates to make clear that maybe this does at least sort of matter to you. Instead, you chose not to. And I touched on it briefly. But going back to the fact that they're black military members, guess what? When they come back, they get treated the same. You think that when you're black and in the military, you go back and people actually care that you were in the military? They're subject to the same sort of injustice that your teammates are literally trying to bring more and more awareness to, as if we need any more. There is no protected class. Not when you're black and either a cop or in the military. No matter how much you want it to be so. And it's infuriating that he did that. My question to you would be is is what is there an explanation or is they uh, there is there a sort of explanation that he could have given which could have made his act more digestible. No. Absolutely not. Team point aside, the messaging has been very clear. Messaging from the players in any league, messaging from activists, it has been clear. There is no room for misinterpretation or misinformation. You know exactly what they're trying to say and you decided not to say it. So no. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he didn't provide an explanation doesn't, all that allows for is for people to come up for explanation, with explanations, potential explanations for it to infer them on our own. And like when I've been thinking about it, the explanations that I have sort of felt like he must be getting at is either one, 
we're talking about something in terms of black oppression at the hands of police that he doesn't see as big of an issue as honoring military, which in its own right would be crazy to pick that opportunity to make that statement the way he did. Uh, the only other like thing I could possibly infer of what he might have been trying to say is that the name Antoine Rose, he doesn't associate in the same way. Like, does he think the policeman was justified in that case? Like, that's what I have to infer. Mm -hmm. If you're that uncomfortable with this person's name, I don't feel like I have any choice but to infer that what you're essentially saying is you're making a statement almost saying that I think the police officer might have been justified. Or at least that I'm not willing to honor him as some sort of tragedy. That's all I can infer when you don't even step up to the plate to explain why you did what you did. Because once again, there's no explanation for why you can't honor Alwyn Cash on your own time. Right. When there was a team vote saying, this is what we're going to do for our time together on the field. And yeah, the fact that he used Alwyn Cash, it definitely screamed of, oh, well, I picked a black military I picked a black guy. I picked a black guy. So it's my cover that this isn't about race. This is this is a wild. He's doing himself an incredible disservice by not owning it and trying to speak to it and explain it. Because to leave your teammates hanging the way he did, and to as you said deliberately choose you weren't going to wear the name Antoine on your helmet. It feels like you owe an explanation. And like the Steelers, they're trying to do what football teams do and essentially just push it to the side and rally together as a team because their goal is winning a Super Bowl. But I don't know. I I have to imagine there are some people in that locker room looking at him funny right now. All right, folks, y'all know what time it is. It's award time. Every week, we look through and see who deserves to get roasted, uplifted, or anywhere in between. Um, I know Brian is going to go first with his award. Let me just say for the record that uh, Dan McNeil does not deserve the dignity of having an award named after him. What he said was disgusting. I'm so glad he got fired. And now that that's out of the way, Mr. Robin. Yeah, that guy's the worst. Um, <laughs> so someone else who is the worst. There's not even a reference for this one. I think it's just time we open up the Hypocrisy Hall of Fame. And I have our inaugural inductee Ooh. to the Hypocrisy Hall of Fame. And he goes by the name of Senator Lindsey Graham oh, of the Palmetto State of South Carolina. Because... 
for some reason, he decided he wanted to try to big boy his Democratic opponent, Jamie Harrison, by releasing a bunch of his tax returns last week and then acting as if Jamie Harrison had been unwilling to release his. He basically said, I've released mine. I'm counting the days until you release yours. Earlier this week, he had the audacity to say, it's been five days. (laughs) I'm still waiting for your tax returns. The people of South Carolina want to know where you got your money. Jamie Harrison was quick to release them a day later by saying, done, now do President Trump. Because it is quite funny, isn't it, that Lindsey Graham uh, was very worked up about his Senate opponent taking five days to release his tax returns. Doesn't seem to mind so much that it's been five years and we still haven't seen Donald Trump's. So, our inaugural inductee into the Hypocrisy Hall of Fame, Senator Lindsey Graham. Beautifully done. And if you don't mind... It turns out that I'll be right behind you with its second inductee. It's a two-inductee weekend. It's a two-person class. Absolutely. And this, unfortunately, with the new news that I received during this very episode, is the reason why they are being inducted as a league. It is very easy. It is very on-brand, dare I say, that the NFL tries to say two things, two opposing things at the same time, and go... Yay, football! Um, It reached a new level on Sunday when apparently the very same Colin Kaepernick that somehow can't find a job and is the highest ranked free agent quarterback on Madden, which made national news, he was thanked. And in the opening video, hypocrite, Hall of Fame, two-person class. The NFL right next to Lindsey Graham. <laughs> it was so bad. Eric Reed was uh, real mad. You should read his Twitter. Uh, oh, but... man. And, and he's not signed either, is he? No, no. He has been basically blackballed as well, it seems. That's uh, cute. Um, so cute. Let's, uh, let's switch it up. Get off the NFL for a minute. Because I'm going to do something I don't often do. And that is criticize the NBA. Uh, but before I do that, I need to provide you the usual context. Uh, but of course. Have you been versed in any recent Taylor Swift music? I don't listen to her. That's okay. It's to each their own. Uh, <laughs> I have become a member. Uh, you you remember Real Husbands of Hollywood? You're, of course. That show was hilarious. I didn't get it, but when I did, it was funny. So I consider myself like one of the leading members these days of the real husbands of Taylor Swift. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm telling. Because, you know, I have uh, become quite well versed in Taylor Swift through my significant other. And one of our least favorite Taylor Swift songs ever came out about two years ago. It went by the name of You Need to Calm Down. Oh, that's the one that they be playing on the commercials. You need to calm down. Yeah, you're being too loud. (laughs) Well, guess who was being too loud last night and really needed to calm down? I'll tell you who. NBA Twitter and NBA media. We couldn't get through five minutes of the Clippers 
choking a 3-1 lead and being eliminated from the NBA playoffs without, we couldn't acknowledge the greatness that Denver put on display coming back from 3-1 down for the second consecutive series, the first team ever in NBA history to come back from 3-1 down twice in one postseason. We couldn't take five minutes to appreciate Denver before we were already talking about Oh, you know, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, free agents after next season. Could the Clipper dynasty be over before it even started? Dynasty? (laughs) Come on, people. Can we chill with the constant free agent draft pick trade speculation? I get it. It's fun to talk about. It makes for good fodder, but it makes for good fodder during the off season or during November, December, when the regular season's going through its boring phase. It's not what we need to be talking about in the NBA playoffs. We are a day away from the conference finals, and we're talking about what's going to happen in the 2022 off season already? The 2021 off season already? You need to calm down. You're being too loud, people. <laughs> NBA Twitter. NBA media, you win the Taylor Swift award of the week for you need to calm down. My goodness. That's well, well said. Well said. I finally get to do a very, very, very positive award. And as it turns out, we have to give a very big congratulations to one Maya Moore, who has recently married Jonathan Irons. I've got to be honest, that news came out of nowhere, but she seems happy. And that's incredible to me. So I'm happy. And I also finally get to give the Maya, the Maya Moore Award. And this time it will go to one Naomi Osaka. Why, you ask? Because Naomi Osaka won the U.S. Open in the shadows of one Serena Williams, Venus Williams, and pretty much every black female tennis player to ever step foot on a grass, clay, or other court i'm not that well versed in tennis i'm so sorry but nevertheless for every match that she played she had the name of a different victim of police brutality on her mask to a point where her native japan since her mother is japanese literally gaped in horror when tamir rice was the subject of one of her masks and going into the fact that a 12 year old boy was shot and killed senselessly but this brave young woman who has already made very clear that while she is Japanese she is also black and proud after her big win this is what she tweeted she said all the people that were telling me to keep politics out of sports which it wasn't political at all really inspired me to win. You better believe I'm going to try to be on your TV for as long as possible. Ain't nothing more to say. The difference is, unlike Maya Moore, who walked away at the height of her game, seems like Naomi Osaka is just getting started. The Maya Moore Award to Naomi Osaka. Thank you for everything. Two baller things that she did. For one, having the seven individual masks with the seven names, essentially telling herself, you better get to that final so you can wear every single one of these masks. Like that is, if that's not motivation just to the extreme and finding a way to Mm self-motivate, applause to you. That is baller in its own right. The second baller thing she did, when Tom Rinaldi asked her after the championship, 
what was the message you were trying to send to people uh, with your masks? Her quick comeback of, well, what did you take from my masks? Was just, I wish she had really made him answer the question. She sort of started talking over the awkward silence that came up after she said that. I wish she had just let it sit there and made Tom answer the question because that would have been ultimate baller move. She's a baller no matter what, though. She is, quite frankly, the best player in women's tennis right now. Gotta love me some Naomi Osaka. That's a fact. And she and her boyfriend, I don't know his name. I'm not into the new guys like that. I'm not sorry about it. But if you remember, even from back in the day when Serena won Wimbledon and Crip Walk, this time, Naomi Osaka with a, vi- with a very cozy picture of her and her boyfriend. Her boyfriend flipping off the camera, and it just looked like they were both so happy. And I'm like, this is awesome. It's really awesome. A quote-unquote Lily White sport having to deal with a very, very in-your-face picture, which I hope lives on forever. So that was really cool, too. Hopefully this time around, uh, Japanese media didn't try to uh, whitewash her. Yeah, that, that would be great. Uh, would be great. Rui Hopefully Hachimura. they've moved past that phase. I hope so too, because Rui Hachimura would like a word. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. But that's topic for another day. Ooh. At any rate, I think we're done. Look at us. Yeah. Like kind of concise this time. Who are we? I don't know. We're, we're, we're all clones. At any rate, in case you like this and more of the conversations between the intersection of race and sports, here's how you can keep up. We're available wherever you get your podcasts, hosted on Anchor, but also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts as well. Feel free to follow us on the socials at Award Tour Pod, both on Twitter and Instagram. On Instagram and Twitter for me as well, I am NKWA with the underscore in front of all that. And I am Brian Albin Life with a Y in the Brian. And you can also find us on Twitter at Award Tour Pod as well. We take care of our own. We take care of it all. And we thank you for coming along for the ride yet again. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.